0: This is the most ambitious housing plan to tackle supply any Canadian government has ever put forward. And it's also just a first step.
1: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That was the voice of federal finance minister, Christia Freeland, speaking on budget day yesterday. Housing, a major component of this budget. You got that new tax-free savings account in there for first-time home buyers. I think that could be really popular. Billions of dollars in the budget to double new home construction. And the foreign buyers ban, as expected in the budget yesterday, a two-year ban on foreign buyers in Canadian real estate. Will it make any difference in this housing market? Liberal MP Randeep Sarai thinks it will. Here's what he told me yesterday. We've seen in particular in British Columbia with over almost a billion dollars a year, 900 plus million uh, to 2 billion a year,
2: was coming in from offshore buying homes just in the Metro Vancouver, uh, Greater Vancouver region. Since then, I think Canadians have, and particularly British Columbians, have have, uh, found that uh, uh, very dangerous, uh, very uh, concerning, especially when they were leaving them empty.
1: All right, let's discuss now. Wow, what a great panel we've got for you this morning. Andrew Weaver, former leader of the B. B.C. Green Party. He's been calling for that foreign buyers ban for years. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you being here. Dylan Kruger on the line. Dylan is a Delta City Councilor. Please do welcome him back as well. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, to both of you being here. Andrew Weaver, let me go to you first. I remember talking to you years ago about a, a buyer's ban, a foreign buyer's ban, a real estate. Is this what you wanted to see in the budget yesterday?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We uh, were pushing for that back in 2016 as part yeah. of our party platform in the lead up to the 2017 provincial election. Uh, we knew what the problem was uh, at the time. Of course, speculation was, was an issue. Uh, the NDP campaigned on something different. Uh, we campaigned on a foreign buyers ban, so it was uh, very pleased to see that happen federally. Um, and I, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about why. I, I'm so happy about that.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, I think maybe it would have been better to bring it in many years ago. I'm not sure it will make much of a difference right now. Dylan Kruger, your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's a lot to
2: like in the budget when it comes to, to the, the housing supply piece. I love uh, you know that we're finally starting to, to tie transit funding to requiring municipalities to build more homes. The multi-generational home reno tax, I think, is a unique idea. The foreign buyers ban, though, it's probably smart politics. I'm sure there's polling the liberals did that that demonstrated that. Uh, But in my opinion, it's not going to do a single thing to cool the housing market or solve the affordability crisis.
1: Andrew Weaver, what do you say to that?
3: Well, of course, that's where I fundamentally uh, disagree. We know we can go to other jurisdictions that had the similar problem to what we had. In particular, the example that we used uh, was New Zealand and, and Australia. You, you cannot buy a home uh, in Australia or New Zealand. Uh, they have foreign. Uh, ban. In fact, most parts of Europe have, have similar things. Many parts of Asia have similar things. Canada is quite unique. Um, in that anybody, anywhere in the world can buy any property they want anytime with any amount of money. Uh, that is not the norm on the international scene. So it strikes me as odd that we would somehow uh, think it's okay for other jurisdictions to not allow Canadians to buy foreign a property there for the re- exact reasons that yeah. the Trudeau government has brought it in. Yet we seem to think it's okay here. And, and there's a consequence, there's a social consequence when people are looking to park their uh, their capital in a safe haven, particularly right. in these tumultuous times, that safe haven is housing in Canada, and okay. that is not not good good for the people here.
1: Dylan Kruger, your thoughts? Like the governments have already brought in a lot of measures to sort of tamp down those foreign buyers. Like they brought in a foreign buyers tax. There's an empty homes tax, vacancy tax, and if you look at the statistics now, it says only a small percentage of Home sales or foreign buyers. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think we have to decide what the policy aim is that we're trying to achieve here. If the, if the aim is that we, as a principal,
2: don't want to see foreigners in our housing market, sure, let's have that discussion. But if the aim is to cool the housing market, if it's to create more affordable housing, we know that's not going to happen. I mean, the BC example is a great one. The BC Liberals introduced the foreign buyers' tax in 2016. When the NDP came into power, they increased that tax. It's now 20% of the property's value. Since the introduction of that tax, foreign purchases of property have have basically uh, dropped very close to zero. I think it was 1.4% of all homes sold in the province in 2020. And at the same time, as the percentage of homes that that are sold to foreign buyers decrease, uh, property values and rent prices have continued to rise. Last year, it was a 22% increase in single-family homes. So so clearly, there's a lot more at play here than just the foreign buyers piece.
1: Speaking to Andrew Weaver and Dylan Kruger, Dylan yeah, about how house. you need
2: a national uplaw ap- policy so that it
3: applies equally across Canada, not just in British Columbia.
1: Hey Andrew, let me let me play another clip here for you from Liberal MP Randip Sarai on yesterday's show, uh, defending this foreign buyers ban and acknowledging, yeah, okay, the percentage of uh, sales in our market right now are relatively low for foreign buyers. But he says, look, it's still a good idea to ban foreign buyers because it could ramp up again. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday. And then I'll get your thoughts
2: the fear is when, when there's global uncertainty on the borders of Europe, uh, uh, in other places around the world, but Vancouver and Canada itself will become a haven again for people to come and park their money or, or buy a second home. And and we don't want that, especially when it's displacing our local, uh, residents.
1: Andrew Weaver, do you agree with him there?
3: Bingo. Exactly. And, and when you're doing it at a national level, it corrects things like, um, people, you know, parking their money in Ontario instead of British Columbia. And, 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 uh, so absolutely i mean it's targeting it's not targeting the the immigrant who's coming here to to make you know a better life for their family it's targeting yeah. the multi-billion dollar uh... person who's sitting somewhere and looking to park their money in a stable safe haven and canada's real estate has been that and we all know the stories and to pretend that those stories don't exist is 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 is, is, is unrealistic and the final thing i'd say is that um, the foreign buyers tax was never an effective policy because it just gets counted in as the cost of doing business. That is why, and other jurisdictions have done that. That is why the ban is important, particularly as the minister said, in tumultuous times when people will be looking to park their money. Look what we're doing in the U.S. and around the world, trying to get at the money from the Russian oligarchs that is hiding in various jurisdictions. It's not only Russian oligarchs. There's lots of money out there. That is just being part of BC real estate.
1: Okay. Well, we'll see what the impact of this foreign buyers ban is. It's only in place for two years. Dylan Kruger, you mentioned off the bat that you, there was a lot of other stuff in housing in this budget that you liked. We've got that first time home buyers tax free savings account. You can put 40,000 bucks tax free into this account to save up for a first home, which I, I think a lot of people will get into that billions of dollars to, in the budget to double new home construction, do you think th- do you think those policies will be effective?
2: I, I think the biggest piece here is that municipalities have not been building enough supply to keep up with, with demand. We we know that as Canada continues to grow and we're accepting more immigrants, uh, the number of housing units per Canadians is is declining. We have the second largest pop- uh, geograph- geographic country in the world, yet we can't seem to build enough homes for people. So, uh, senior government policy that that ties grant funding. Uh, to building more homes, I, I think, is really positive. That's why I like some of the, the language around transit funding. You know, we're building a $3 billion Broadway subway project in Vancouver right now with no guarantees whatsoever on transit-oriented development. We've tried these demand suppression tactics with the foreign buyer's tax, the speculation tax, the empty homes tax, uh, and they haven't worked. We, we need to pressure municipalities to, to boost uh, levels of supply. There are some measures in this budget that I think achieve that
1: all right welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the housing crunch and the measures in yesterday's federal budget to deal with it including that foreign buyers ban andrew weaver from the former leader of the bc green party dylan Kruger, delta city councillor, are my guests phone lines are open 604-280-9898 star 9898 in your cell brad in qualicum beach hi
3: oh hey mike um I, I, I'm not totally against this. It, it may work, but I do fear that it'll have a negative impact on the rental market. I know my son and daughter-in-law live in Vancouver, and they're in an apartment that is owned by a foreign buyer. They're getting about a 15 to 18% cut on their rate uh, because the the buyer, who, who the owner who lives, lives away. Uh, wanted somebody long term and wanted somebody that he could trust. Uh, so he's got great tenants, and, and they they pay a little bit less than market for that property. And I'm, I'm concerned that if we if we remove all of this investment from our real estate market, that we're actually going to have a negative impact on the availability of rental properties, as opposed to the the uh, declining property prices that we all hope are going to many hope
1: are going to happen. So that, that that's my concern. I'm not sure it's that well thought out. Andrew Weaver, your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I recognize that there'll be all sorts of concerns. I I, I would disagree that... uh, it will have set effect. I, I do also agree with Dylan, of course, that uh, we do need to, it's not all one or the other. It's both. Having the foreign buyers ban, uh, which as put forward, is critical policy in my view, but also there are myriad uh, regulatory barriers at the local government level that need to be removed to ensure enhanced capacity is built. And I totally agree with that, too. Uh, you know, uh, so, but, but I'm not sure that the, the link to the rental market is there. Of course, um, the rental market was, was uh, spurned because of the speculation tax in B.C which made it uh, desirable for people to make sure that their units that they parked their money in were rented out. Uh, So there's some truth to that, that you will find people who who rented it. But overall, um, you know, I think the the market is the market. Uh, We want to to reduce demand, particularly of offshore money, to ensure prices drop. When prices drop,
2: there's a direct correlation between the rental rental as well.
1: Dylan Krueger, your thoughts. The,
2: the most important metric when we're talking about housing affordability and availability, uh, especially in the B.C. context, is the rental vacancy rate. Rental vacancy rates uh, are some of the lowest they've ever been right now. They're hovering around 1% or 2%. So that's the number that I want to see. I want measures that bring that number up. Um, whoever owns the unit, you know, I don't really care about that as much, as long as the unit is being rented out and not being left vacant.
1: Let's go to Pat on the line in Richmond. Hi, Pat. Go ahead.
4: Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. Um, so, there's a three step process to ending the uh, the, the problem with the homes being too expensive. The first thing you do is you fill English Bay with cement. Number two, you build those wow. North Shore Mountains. And number three, you uh, give us the same climate as Winnipeg. Because the fact is, this is just a really desirable place to live, and nothing's going to change that. As for the foreign fire tax, um, they're just going to find a proxy. Rich people are smart. They'll figure out a way to buy a place in Vancouver,
1: trust me. Okay, I wonder about, okay, I guess he was making a point that, you know, we're a constricted kind of coastal region here, and there's not a lot of more room to build out. I get that. On the foreign buyers part, Andrew Weaver, I've heard people say, hey, there's loopholes in here. Like if you're a foreign student, for example, you'll still be allowed to buy property in Canada. Could that be a loophole that people exploit?
3: Yeah, obviously I wasn't a big fan of that loophole, and uh, obviously there are always loopholes, which is why it's important for any new policy to keep a track of it, to ensure that those loopholes get, close, get closed as soon as uh, you identify them. But I, I, we know that in Vancouver, the uh, the student in Victoria, the student buying the multi-million dollar Shaughnessy mansion, is, has historically been an issue. So I'm surprised that that remained there. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway...
1: Dylan Kruger, the caller, is making the argument that we don't have a lot of land to build out. Doesn't that mean we've got to build up? We've got to densify taller buildings?
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're a very desirable area. We're surrounded by mountains on one side, oceans on the other, and a border yeah. on the other. We know, and also from a climate perspective, we've got to build more dense, walkable communities. It's good for the envi- environment to create a more livable community. Uh, and that's the, the sort of d- density that we need to see in order to create the supply that we so yeah. desperately need.
1: Okay. Keep phoning me. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Steve in Campbell River. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I've got a pretty decent paying job. I'm a renter. And with the prices the way that they are the last couple of years and
3: getting worse, I can't afford to put money away for a down payment for a house. And that just seems to be getting more and more out of touch. I do, however, have tens of thousands of dollars in a retirement savings plan that's locked in that I can't get out until I'm 65, and I feel like if I could cash that in for a down payment on a house, it would do me a lot better in my retirement than just sitting there as an investor.
1: Are, are, are you, do you own a home now? Or I don't. A renter? All right. How old are you? 40. Oh, man, you just barely, you didn't hit that that uh, the age requirement there. Right. Be- because, okay, Dylan Kruger, your thoughts on this first-time homebuyer savings account, right? If you're under 40 you'd be able to save up $40,000 bucks tax free in a savings account to buy a first home. I think that's a pretty, that could be a popular program.
2: It's, it's another savings for Vessel uh, vessel for people that are starting out, and I sympathize with people that uh, just have not been able to get into the market over the last 20 years. Uh, it, it doesn't help that group like the caller that we just listened to. Uh, any opportunity to, to save up money tax-free for, for a house, I think, is a good thing, uh, but it, it's not going to help people that, that, that don't qualify Uh, It's not going to help people that have just, you know, been priced out and are looking at, look, I've got maybe 10 or 20 years of of work left. I don't see the math. I don't see how this is going to work for me.
1: Okay, Andrew Weaver, he's got a minute left. Go ahead.
3: Uh, yeah, okay. Um, one of the things that we haven't talked about is purpose-built rental units, and we're seeing that now emerge in, in, in Victoria, as Mike, you'll know, being here, is that there, we're, we're having tons of rental units actually purpose-built and built. And we used to do that when, when there were incentives to do that back in the 60s, the, the MERB, so to speak. I'm, I, I would like to see more of that, too, purpose-built rentals, and I think that there are tools that local governments can use to ensure that there is more capacity in that area.
1: All right, let's talk about the fight over school pizza days now. My kids used to love pizza day at school. Like, why not? They'd get up in the morning. We'd say, hey, it's pizza day. They'd be pumped up. They'd be right. they know they're getting pizza for lunch. At lunch. And I'll tell you, for busy parents, it was a good thing too, because it was a day you didn't have to make your kids lunch for a change. So the pizza days at our kids' school, we were always gave them a thumbs up. Now check this out. The BC government issuing guidelines here now to, on for food in BC schools. These are draft guidelines. They're asking the public for feedback on it. Look what is on this list here of foods to avoid. Yeah. Pizza, hot dogs, chicken nuggets uh, chips cookies popsicles i can get some of this stuff soft drinks sugar sweetened drinks fruit juices these are foods to avoid avoid pizza avoid hot dogs what about the pizza days let's discuss now with my guest cindy daglish parental advisory council president at cole woodward hill elementary in surrey hi cindy hey mike
4: Hey Mike, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about these draft guidelines here to stay away from pizza?
4: I think it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> we're talking about treats. We're talking about uh, fun and uh, it seems like we're not only policing food but we're now policing the fun of food in our schools.
1: Yeah, cuz it's not like, you know, kids are honking down pizzas every single day. I mean, how often do is there a hot lunch program in a typical school?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I do know of some schools uh, out there that will do, you know, pack lunches a couple times a week, maybe uh, a couple times a month. Ours is about, on average, about once every month to every six weeks. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, parents love it because they don't have to pack a lunch. And uh, kids love it because it's something different and they get excited
1: about it. Well, for sure. And I recall that when our kids were smaller, I think pizza day was once a month at school. And it was not, it was like you said, it was a treat. It was just something different. The government though saying, well, pizza is bad because it got all, well, everything we know about has got high calories and fat and sodium. Have a listen to this, Cindy. You'll get your thoughts. This is a pizza impact on kids in schools. This is from Time Magazine. Have a listen.
4: Pizza is the number one source of solid fat intake for kids. 20% of the pizza that kids eat comes from school cafeterias, which is pretty much equal to the fast food kind in fat, finds a study by Jennifer Pody. Beware the fatty, salty toppings, warns Lisa Powell. Her 2015 study found that on days when kids eat pizza, they take in more calories, saturated fat, and sodium than usual.
1: Okay, so pizza is bad. Some of the experts telling us, Cindy, your thoughts?
4: Uh, everything in moderation. Uh, yeah. What happened to the whole healthy eating habit? You know, there's healthy food and then there's habits. Uh, and I, it just it blows me away that we're trying to... If I, if I look at those food guidelines... My kids would not be getting the calories that they need in order to thrive and grow, period.
1: Really? Really? Okay.
4: Because they won't eat half the things on that list.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff. Okay. Some of this, I'm looking at the list right now. So these are guidelines that recommend natural non-processed foods like fruit, vegetables, uh, tofu, uh, water, stay away from, you know, other drinks, uh, dairy beverages, don't drink milk, whole, whole fat milk, you know, so you're saying like a lot of kids, you put this in front of a lot of kids, they just won't eat it.
4: Uh, anything on that list The fruit and vegetables, all in. I'm all in. That's great. Yeah. Um, but tofu, if I put that in front of my kids, and they would just look at it and go, what is that? They yeah. don't, they won't eat things like that. And yeah. we're we're not even just talking about my kids. We're talking about so many different needs of kids whether you are uh someone who is muslim and need halal food or you are a vegan and you have different dietary re- requirements or you have food aversions these uh, guidelines do not meet everybody's needs
1: what about um, hot, what about hot dogs hot dogs are on the government's hit list here too
4: Listen, I have a I have a personal opinion on hot dogs, and it is, don't tell me what's in them, they're too delicious, I don't want to know. <laughs> okay. So, you know, yes, but again, in moderation, right? It's yeah. about the moderation factor, and that is what pack hot lunches and the cookie sales and the freezy days. That's what they're about. They're about building community and celebrating our, our schools and kind of going to that traditional way of, thinking is you you come together when you've got food in front of you right it's it's a it's a healthy discourse to have once in a while
1: okay we're not
4: we're not talking about those food programs that you know we're we're feeding children on a daily basis this is this is supposed to be the
1: fun stuff right this is kind of an occasional treat for sure there's a lot of fear and concern around specifically around hot dogs lately cindy you may be aware of that study that Thanks. came out about a year ago that said if you if <laughs> eat a single hot dog it could actually shorten your life let's have a listen to this uh, short report here from abc news on that and we will get your thoughts
2: a new study suggests that eating one hot dog takes 36 minutes off of your life New research from the University of Michigan evaluating more than 5,800 foods, ranking them by their nutritional disease burden to humans. A beef hot dog on a bun resulting in
1: 36 minutes lost, largely due to the detrimental effect of processed meat. Okay, so we, you know, no one likes the idea of feeding food to kids that is going to make them unhealthy or shorten anyone's life. But come on, like uh, occasional hot dog, like are there like fundraisers at stuff that go on with packs at school, Cindy, like where you might have like a, you know, sell some hot dogs?
4: Absolutely, there is. And yeah. again, it's, it's that moderation factor. You know, we're not feeding our kids hot dogs every day. And maybe some families are because that's all they can afford. And maybe if I was to buy into that study, which I'd love to know if it was peer reviewed, it's 36 minutes for every hot dog. I don't know if I'd be alive. Right now, at the age of 47, I don't know if I should be alive then, because I grew up on hot dogs.
1: Yeah, well, I look back on what I ate in school, and I remember I attended a very large high school, there was a very large, busy cafeteria in the school, and the most popular item on the menu every day was known as a platter. We called it a platter. So if you went in, you're in the lineup at the cafeteria, all you had to say was, a platter with gravy. And what that was was a cheeseburger, side of fries, and the fries were just lathered in gravy. And, I I mean, every kid at our school, we were eating a ton of these things every day. And I ate a lot of them. I turned out okay. You know, I wasn't eating it every day. But go ahead.
4: Yeah, no, that's just it. You're not eating it every day. Yeah. Sure, do I agree that these are the healthiest choices for our kids? No. I don't. I, I I get that aspect of it, but it's it's about the healthy eating habits that we've missed the mark on this completely. Um, you know, and when we say guidelines, I'm I'm concerned because here in Surrey, when I see uh, something out of the district that says guidelines, yep. I hear and know that that means policy, which means barriers and uh, boundaries, and it's just. I look to the average family. The disparity even in surrey from a, a, an income level, and there are kids in the north part of the, of the district versus the kids in the south part of the district, and we have to meet all of their needs yeah. we can't we can't uh, we can't be picking and choosing, and this is clearly catered to families that have money
1: yeah, okay. would you say that I mean everyone's in favor of healthy eating and nutrition for our children uh, you know you're not going to get anyone who's opposed to that. So could we do a better job, though, of offering kids, like, more variety or healthier choices in schools?
4: Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about food programs, absolutely, I think they need to, they could incorporate. But when we're talking about treats and fun yeah. um, and pack hot lunches, I don't think we need to wa- worry about it as much. Parents can opt in to these hot lunches, and if they don't meet their child's dietary needs, um, then they have the option not to... to participate the right. problem is is when you back off to the, the to the what the food guidelines are saying it, it actually decreases the fundraising potential because there's mm-hmm. so many families that would not be able to participate in this because their kids won't eat it um and then that that opens up that whole other can of worms is that packs are responsible for, they're not technically supposed to be but they are responsible for fundraising to support what happens in the school building so yeah. because we're not adequately funded by the Ministry of Education therefore parents have the burden of fundraising yeah. so if the government wants to, to adequately support uh, our education system and imp- implement these food guidelines that would be a whole different conversation but we're not there and right now we should be able to have fun
1: Cindy, thank while for you for it thank you for coming on with your thoughts today thank you mike all right welcome back to the show let's talk now about the incoming vaccination disclosure rules for healthcare professionals now this is for extended health providers so your dentist your dental hygienist chiropractors registered massage therapists should you have the right to know if your healthcare provider is vaccinated or not should you be able to know if your dentist is vaccinated? How about the hygienist cleaning your teeth? Should you have the right to know if they are vaccinated or not? Dr. Bonnie Henry says that you should. They are developing these rules and the public disclosure to patients. Have a listen to this. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking about this.
4: We have good data on most people. Our team is now actively compiling this aggregated vaccination data by profession.
1: People will have informed consent about whether they want to receive a procedure from a private practitioner who's vaccinated or not. Okay, does this raise a privacy issue? Now, we talked about this earlier on the show this week. I spoke to lawyer Ari Goldkind. He thinks this is going too far. Here's what he had to say to me.
4: This is a step too far. It goes far too far into Orwellian territory. I don't think it's necessary for the protection and safety of the public. I think it has witch hunt
1: aspects to it. We obviously know that the intention is to turn people against doctors who don't want to provide that information. Okay, well, he thinks it goes way too far. We are going to see how the government rolls this out. There are a lot of questions about how this is going to work. Would there be some sort of publicly accessible registry where you could look up your dentist online and see if he's vaccinated or not? Or would it be a private disclosure from the healthcare provider to the patient. Government's still working on that. Okay, let's discuss this now and other aspects of privacy during the pandemic with my guest, Anne Kavukian. Anne is one of the world's foremost experts on privacy. She is the former information and privacy commissioner in Ontario. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Anne, thank you very kindly for coming on today. My pleasure. OK, what do you think of this one that we have here in B.C. right now where the public health officials are saying, look, if you are going to see an extended health care provider, a dentist, a chiropractor, you should have the right to know if they're vaccinated or not. Do you think that goes too far?
0: Definitely goes too far. This is health related information is personal information. It deserves the strongest privacy protection possible, and that extends to everyone, including doctors and physicians and dentists and whoever you may be seeing. I mean, think about it. Have, you been, have they been asked to disclose if they have obtained vaccines for other things in the past? You know, there's all kinds of vaccines that people get, they don't get, it's a personal choice. This is going way too far, and I truly, truly hope it does not pass.
1: Yeah, there, there really is an interesting debate going on it today. And certainly you have a very clear position on it. Some people are wondering how they're going to set this up. Like if there was some sort of a public registry, you could go online. Oh, I can just go on this website, type in the name oh. of my dentist and see if he's yeah. vaccinated or not. It maybe it would be something like that. I have a feeling it would be more of a, oh. a, a private disclosure from patient to doctor or from dentist to patient. You know, do you think that would make any difference?
0: It wouldn't remain private. That's the thing. This yeah. will not remain private. It will end up being, as you described, something, you can go online and check out or whatever. And it's it's completely unacceptable. I mean, people don't you know, get vaccines for measles or smallpox, or all kinds of things. You don't ask them about information about that. Yeah. This is such a transgression in terms of privacy.
1: Right. Do you think that there's any kind of liability for government in terms of constitutional rights to to private invasion of privacy? Do you think something like that could be challenged in in court?
0: It could be challenged in court. I don't know if it would be or not, so I don't want to just make any assumptions there. But Uh, the point is, just as I think you had uh, someone else on the show who also said this would be such a fundamental invasion of privacy. Health information is the most sensitive information deserving the strongest privacy protection.
1: Right. What if you are a patient, though, and let's say you're immune compromised, you're very concerned about catching this virus, you've taken every precaution possible, and now you have a dentist appointment maybe to get your teeth cleaned, and you're thinking like, wait a minute, do I really want a hygienist rooting around in my mouth if I know that the hygienist is unvaccinated? I should have the right to know that.
0: Uh, no. I, uh, in fact, I was just at the dentist yesterday and you wouldn't believe the number of masks that they wear and the, all the protection yeah. they have on their faces. They're worried about being exposed to patients. They don't ask patients if you've been vaccinated or not because it's none of their business. So the same applies for them. They go to great measures, great lengths to protect you in terms of the, the masks, the multiple masks that they have on.
1: Speaking to privacy expert Anne Kavukian about the vaccine disclosure rules for extended health professionals, we've, there are a lot of privacy issues around the management of this pandemic and you've been speaking out on a lot of them. Here in British Columbia today, we have stopped requiring the vaccine card system so it was until today it was required to show proof of vaccination to go to pub restaurant movie theater that's been dropped although some businesses are still be allowed to use it if they want what do you think of that
0: i i'm so glad they dropped it they dropped it here in ontario as well a few weeks ago and it's great, you know people go into these things. If you want to wear a mask, you can wear a mask. If you don't, you don't have to it's, it's they're, they're, people cannot be compelled to reveal their vaccine status or lack thereof. That's nobody's information if your personal information deserves the strongest privacy.
1: Yeah, do you think though that the rules change in a in a pandemic and a public health emergency?
0: I don't because there are so many assumptions being made in association with the vaccines and their efficacy. I mean, how many vaccines do people now require? They're talking about the six, six booster shot or something. It's yeah. There's a lot of contrary information that's not getting out in terms of mainstream media on the effectiveness or lack thereof of these vaccines. So to just uh, say that, well, this is the way it's going to be is ridiculous.
1: How about the, a lot of these vaccine mandates and rules and restrictions are being relaxed and dropped across the country. There there are still some significant ones, of course, still in place, though, notably the travel vaccination requirements. So proof of vaccination to fly on on a plane, including a domestic flight or a train. Do you think that should Uh, be dropped?
0: Absolutely. And I can't wait until it's dropped because it's restricting people's freedoms enormously. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So do you? Th- so what? So you think that it, let's say I'm sitting next to someone on a on a plane, and right now it may give some people some a feeling of security or comfort to know that everyone on that plane is vaccinated. What about but it's that? just a
0: feeling of security. It's not reality that they think that's somehow going to protect them. I mean, most of the so many people who have had COVID have been you know triple vaxxed and booster shotted and, and to no effect. So it's a myth. That you're thinking somehow this vac status is going to protect you, and to impose that on people arbitrarily is is completely unacceptable.
1: You know, you're the uh, the former privacy information and privacy commissioner for Ontario. Yes. Do you think right? Do you think (laughs) um, in terms of the privacy requirements and safeguards that we should have in our country? Do you think that governments collecting this type of information, do you think there's any kind of jeopardy or danger of, pub- of, of information being hacked or leaked? Or Of course.
0: Yeah. You just mentioned it. I mean, all the risks associated with collecting this information and no doubt retaining it online, which is what everybody does. There are massive risks. The data are not encrypted. They're going to be accessible to hackers, etc. Forget about it. It's a mistake. Don't do it.
1: Yeah. What do you think about the, the situation in Canada right now? A lot of there are federal rules, and then you have a patchwork of provincial uh, rules. When you look across Canada, how do we compare to other countries on this kind of stuff?
0: Most countries around the world are dropping any requirement for a vaccine mandate. So we have to preserve our freedoms, drop these uh, stupid mandates, and just let people live their lives.
1: All right. Well, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it.
0: Of course. My pleasure. Thank
1: All you. All right.